Today, we will first summarize some arguments for the pre-tribulation rapture and explain why it's an important issue with vital practical application for our lives. First of all, the wrath argument, which is based on understanding the nature of the tribulation as a time of worldwide divine judgment or wrath, which is why it's called the Day of the Lord. This is why Jesus compared the tribulation to Noah's flood. Although one characteristic of the whole tribulation is the wrath of Satan and man, with evil coming to its fullness, its main characteristic is the wrath of God, revealed in the seal, trumpet and bold judgments. All the events of the tribulation are initiated by Christ in heaven as he starts to break the seals. Romans 5.9 says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. This isn't just talking about being saved from hell, but also from the wrath of the tribulation. When Jesus came the first time, he saved us from God's wrath by his death. But 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that when Jesus returns to the earth, he does so with the purpose of delivering us, us believers, from the wrath of God coming on the earth, saying, We are to wait for his Son to come from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is talking about the tribulation. So Jesus returns to deliver the church from the tribulation. Later in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Paul describes how he'll do this by means of the rapture. He concludes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 by saying, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the rapture, through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has promised the church total deliverance from the wrath of God. So, as the tribulation is a worldwide judgment, he must first remove us from the scene of judgment, namely the earth, just as he removed Noah into the ark before sending the flood, and just as he removed Lot from Sodom before raining down the fire and brimstone. The second argument is based on the ambassadors. In the tribulation, God's kingdom starts waging war on the kingdoms of this world, for he's taking back the earth by force. And by its end, he'll destroy all earthly kingdoms and establish his, and establish his kingdom over all. And this is pictured in Daniel 2, which interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a giant statue which represents the main Gentile powers which dominate Israel. The statue stood until a stone cut out without hands representing the Messiah struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then Daniel 2.35 says, Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver and gold were crushed together and became like chaff. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This mountain represents the messianic kingdom according to the interpretation in verse 44. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. God does not use maximum force and finish the job in one day, but spreads the war over seven years of increasing bombardment to save as many as possible. The tribulation begins when Christ starts to move against the kingdoms of this world by breaking the seals. Now when a nation is about to declare war on another nation, it first removes its ambassadors before hostilities begin. So likewise, God will remove his ambassadors before the tribulation. This is confirmed by Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
So Jesus will sit at the Father's right hand until the time comes for his enemies to be judged and put under his feet. Thus, he sits for the duration of the church age, but will rise from his throne to take new action during the tribulation. The fact he'll no longer be permanently seated indicates that he himself will carry out this judgment when the Father releases him. So the action that will signal and, and initiate a new phase of history when God starts to forcibly put his enemies underfoot will be when Jesus rises from his throne. He'll do this when he returns to the earth to fetch his bride in the rapture, and this will initiate the tribulation. It's significant that when Jesus initiates the judgments of the tribulation by breaking the seals, he's standing, not sitting. We see that in Revelation 5, verse 5. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw in the midst of the throne a lamb standing. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The fact that Jesus stands to break the seals at the start of the tribulation indicates that it's now a new phase of history where he's no longer sitting. According to Psalm 110, this change of posture means that he's now starting to put his enemies under his feet. He's personally starting to take action, to intervene in world events, moving in judgment, for it's the day of the Lord. Another reason for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church comes from Daniel's 70 weeks, which says that God allocated 490 years on Israel's clock to fulfill his purposes for Israel. We saw that because Israel rejected the Messiah, God stopped Israel's clock in AD 33 and brought in the church as his representatives for the new church age. So now God measures time by the church clock. But God hasn't finished with Israel and there are still seven years left to run on Israel's clock, by the end of which Israel will be saved and the messianic kingdom established. And these seven years are Daniel's 70th week. So, at some point in the future, God will restart Israel's clock for her last seven years to run as the tribulation. During this time of Daniel's 70th week, Israel will again be God's representative, and God will fulfill his purposes for Israel. The fact that God will measure time by Israel's clock in the tribulation rather than by the church's clock can only mean that the church will stop being God's representative on earth. So the church age must end before the tribulation begins. Thus the rapture must happen before the tribulation so that the baton can be handed back to Israel. For these last seven years are primarily to do with Israel as Daniel 70 weeks tells us. We see this transfer of anointing back to Israel in the anointing and sealing of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists at the start of the tribulation. So when the church age has finished at the rapture, then God will turn back to Israel and restart her clock. By the end of these seven years, Israel will fully repent and the kingdom will be restored to her through the coming of her Messiah, Jesus. A number of scriptures make it clear that Jesus will remove all unbelievers from the earth at his second coming, so that only believers will enter his kingdom on earth. However, if all the believers are raptured at or near the end of the tribulation, then there will be nobody left in their natural bodies to populate the millennial kingdom on earth. This is a major problem. First, Jesus said the tribulation, which climaxes in the second coming, will be like the days of Noah, when all unbelievers were killed, and only the believers were allowed to populate the new earth. Second, in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13, Jesus made this very point. 
He compared the world to a field with two kinds of seed, the good seed, who are the sons of God, and the tares, the sons of the evil one. In the end of the age, the tribulation, which is the harvest time, all the tares are gathered and thrown into the fire. Thus, by the end of the tribulation, all unbelievers will be removed from the earth into Hades, so that only the righteous by faith will remain to enter the kingdom. Third, Jesus made the same point in Matthew 25, 31-46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is the throne of David in Jerusalem, from which he'll rule over the earth in the messianic kingdom. It says all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Although it says nations, this is primarily a judgment of individuals. This is the word used for Gentiles. And so it would be better translated, all the Gentiles will be gathered before him. This is a judgment of all the Gentiles who've survived the tribulation to determine which of them will be allowed to enter the Messianic kingdom. This judgment is at the second coming, and its location is on the earth. So this is different from the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, which takes place after the thousand years. He separates them into two groups according to their nature. They're either sheep, believers, or goats, unbelievers. Then verse 34 he describes the sheep as blessed, that is, they possess eternal life, saying, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So they inherit the messianic kingdom. But in verse 41, he describes the goats as accursed under everlasting damnation. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. All these unbelievers are removed from the earth to a place of everlasting punishment, first to Hades, to await their final judgment in the lake of fire. Verse 46 concludes, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's clear that no unbelievers who survive the tribulation will be allowed to remain alive to enter the messianic kingdom. Instead, they're dismissed to a place of punishment. Therefore, only the believers alive at the second coming will possess the kingdom. Fourth, the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 teaches the same truth. The five who were without oil, who weren't born again at his second coming, are excluded from the kingdom. Fifth, a parallel passage in Matthew 7 describes Jesus rejecting some who professed faith in him from entering the kingdom, on the basis that he never knew them, that is, they were never saved. Six, we saw that Israel failed to possess the Messianic kingdom because of unbelief, confirming that the condition to enter the kingdom is faith in Christ. Now, if the rapture happens at the second coming, then as well as all unbelievers being removed by death, all believers will also be removed by rapture, leaving no one left to populate the kingdom in their natural bodies. So the rapture must take place a number of years before the second coming in order for there to be enough time to produce a new crop of believers who will populate the millennium. Only the pre-tribulation rapture fulfills this requirement. Revelation 7 describes the great whole soul harvest that will take place in the first half of the tribulation. Soon after the rapture, God raises up 144,000 Jewish evangelists who spearhead the evangelism in the tribulation. That's Revelation 7, 1-8. 
And this results in the salvation of multitudes, which are seen in verses 9 to 17. Many are martyred, especially in the Great Tribulation, but those who endure to the end of the Tribulation will enter the kingdom and repopulate the earth. A mid-tribulation rapture does not fulfill the requirement, because at mid-tribulation the mark of the beast comes in, when everyone will be forced to make their final decision. If they haven't been saved by now, they'll almost certainly take the mark to survive, and once they take it, they seal their doom forever. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 to 12 confirms that the cut-off point for most people to receive salvation is mid-tribulation. It says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders. That describes his activity at mid-tribulation, agreeing with Revelation 13. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they didn't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That is, they rejected the gospel in the first half of the tribulation. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion, that's the mark of the beast, that they should believe the lie, that they should be all condemned who didn't believe the truth but had un that had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, if all believers were raptured at mid-tribulation, hardly anyone would be left to populate the kingdom. But a pre-trib rapture, followed by a great soul harvest in the first half of the tribulation, will produce a group of believers who will refuse the mark and survive to the end. Many scriptures tell us also to hope, look, wait, watch for the personal coming of the Lord for us, rather than expecting and waiting for the Antichrist to kill us. If we're meant to go through the tribulation, the church would have been told to prepare and look for the Antichrist, for he must come before Christ. But instead, we're told to constantly expect and be ready for the coming of Christ. Thus, he must come before the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says we are to wait for his son to come from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is, from the tribulation. Titus 2.13 says we're to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to look for the blessed hope of Christ, not the blasted hope of the Antichrist. Our blessed hope is our rapture at the pre-tribulation coming of Jesus. But if we must first endure a time of divine wrath and suffering at the hands of Antichrist, that would not be much of a blessed hope. Perhaps the most important reason for believing in the pre-trib rapture is that it's the only view that upholds the doctrine of imminence, which has great practical application to our lives. This vital New Testament doctrine says that the return of Jesus is imminent, that is, he could come at any time. The church is told to look for and live in the light of his imminent coming to translate us into his presence. Therefore, we're to live in constant expectancy and readiness and hope, watching, waiting and looking for Jesus' arrival. This blessed hope is a central teaching of the New Testament and it's designed to motivate us to holy living and evangelism. It's used many times in the New Testament for this purpose. For example, Paul says in Hebrews 10.24, let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. We need to be in church, and one key motivation given here is the Lord's imminent return. This motivation is multiplied when we consider what will happen immediately after the rapture, namely the judgment seat of Christ, when we'll all stand before the Lord to give an account for our life and to receive our eternal rewards.
Therefore, we should run our Christian life every day, conscious that at any moment we'll suddenly be raptured and find ourselves standing before the Lord. Believing in the any moment rapture motivates us to get ready and to make the maximum use of the short time remaining. It's not a teaching of defeatism and escapism, as some have it, but it creates in us an urgency and zeal to be found holy and occupied in serving the Lord when he comes. There's no doubt that the first generation of Christians lived in the light of the imminent return of the Lord, and this was one of the major motivations that they had, enabling them to turn the world upside down. Sadly, as the church lost hold of the truth of the pre-trib rapture, it also lost its vibrant faith in imminency, because the two go hand in hand. You see, without a belief in the pre-trib rapture, it's hard to believe in imminency, making it a neglected doctrine in much of the church world. To understand why believing in imminency is only possible with a pre-trib rapture, remember that Jesus will return in power and glory at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And this has well-defined signs marking its start, middle, and end. If the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, then imminency is impossible, because it couldn't happen for at least seven years. Also, anyone in the tribulation will be able to predict exactly when Jesus returns, since the exact timing of the tribulation is revealed in Daniel and Revelation. Likewise, if the rapture was at mid-tribulation, then it couldn't happen for at least three and a half years. In both cases, a number of signs must come first, so again imminency is destroyed. Therefore, imminency is only possible with a pre-trib rapture. So if we can establish the imminency of the Lord's return for us, then this would also prove the pre-trib rapture. In fact, there's overwhelming evidence for imminency because the New Testament writers frequently appeal to it to motivate their readers. First, for example, they describe his coming as being at hand. Philippians 4.5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. 1 Peter 4.7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Revelation 22, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly for the time is at hand. James 5, 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Romans 13, 11, do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let's cast off the works of darkness and let's put on the armor of light. Second, they describe him as coming quickly, so we're not to expect any delay. Hebrews 10.37 says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not delay. Revelation 3.11 says, Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one take your crown. It's particularly impressive that Jesus' final message to us in the final chapter of the Bible is a threefold emphasis on imminency in Revelation 22, 7, 12, and 20. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Surely I'm coming quickly. This is sometimes translated, Jesus is coming soon, but literally it means quickly or suddenly without warning, a plain statement of imminency. Therefore, we must stay constantly ready for his return so that we can respond as Revelation 22, 7 teaches us by saying to him, Amen, even so, come, come now, Lord Jesus. 
third we've seen that Jesus himself taught imminency in Matthew 24:36. he said but of that day and hour of his rapture of his coming no one knows Matthew 24:42, he said watch therefore for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming verse 44 be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect 25:13. watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We've seen that Jesus said there'll be no specific warning signs before his coming in the rapture, for he would come as a thief in the night, unlike his second coming in power and manifested glory, which comes after a whole sequence of well-defined dramatic signs. The thief in the night is a statement of imminency. A thief comes suddenly and unannounced. His coming in the rapture will be unexpected, catching the world off guard and unprepared. It will be secret. He'll come, do his work, and go away unseen by the unbelievers. Fourthly, we're told to watch, wait, and look expectantly for his coming for us, not for the tribulation or the Antichrist. We must always be ready, for at any moment we might be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Mark 13:33 Jesus said be alert watch and pray for you do not know what hour your lord shall come Hebrews 9:28 says to those who eagerly wait for him Christ will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation and that's the rapture 1 Thessalonians 1:10 says we are to wait for his son to come from heaven even Jesus who in his coming delivers us from the wrath to come when someone important to us is coming to visit us, during the time we expect his arrival, we wait for him to be sure we're ready to welcome him. We only wait for him if he could come at that time. If you know, for example, he won't arrive till tomorrow, then you won't be waiting for him today. So the fact we're to constantly wait for the Lord to come means he could come at any time. Philippians 3.20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 1.7 Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 We should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. So the church is to look for the Lord, returning as her bridegroom, to take her home. The church is told to primarily look for the Lord himself, not for any signs that must come first. So the main focus for our lives now is to be ready for the coming of our Lord. We need to live in constant hope, looking for his coming, for at any time he'll suddenly come, without warning, to rapture us. Soon after, he'll give us a one-on-one -on -one interview with a searching examination of our lives, revealing, review, reviewing, and assessing our works and motives, and giving us eternal rewards of glory according to our faithfulness, faithfulness to him. Imminence means God has deliberately limited our knowledge so we don't know when Jesus will return. As far as we're concerned, he could come at any time and call us to account. So it's vital that we prepare ourselves and stay ready for this imminent meeting with Christ rather than focusing on getting ready for the Antichrist. Imminence is a powerful motivation to live godly lives, to be zealous in evangelism and good works, so that when he returns, he will find us occupied for him and we'll receive his commendation and eternal rewards. 
many scriptures motivate us to live in the light of his imminent return. Now, the Bible's teaching on imminence is undeniable, so often those who reject a pre-trib rapture try to preserve a watered-down form of imminence, redefining it to mean that for every generation Jesus could come in their lifetime. So they say, although he couldn't possibly come in the next few years because of various events that must happen first, he could come in our lifetime. However, this doesn't reflect the immediate urgency of the imminency scriptures, and it greatly diminishes their power to motivate us. For example, imagine you received a letter from the Queen saying that she'll pay you a visit any time and will want to tour your house. That would surely motivate you to get yourself and your house ready for inspection and to stay ready. But if it said that she's coming, but not for a number of years yet, then the impact would be far less. There would be no immediate urgency to change or get ready. Much of the motivating power would be lost. Likewise, when imminency isn't taught, the church loses its urgency. Thus, one of the main motivations for godly living has been lost by much of the modern church. This is illustrated in Matthew 24 by the servant who mistreated the other servants because he assumed his master would delay his coming. Then he's caught by surprise when the Lord suddenly returns and judges him very strictly. God knows that there's something in human nature that slacks off if we think the deadline is a long way away. So he arranged it so that we must believe he could come at any time. Some say that believing in the imminent rapture is escapism. Well, yes, we do want to escape the wrath of the tribulation, but we believe it because it's scriptural, because it's truth. Just as it did for the early church, it motivates us to evangelism and holiness, to live a strong Christian life, 100% for the Lord, and so it's actually a very positive and practical teaching.